1967, the New York Times headlined its review of the current Graham Dance Company, Martha, the Mother of Us All. Time magazine said that no other woman had ever contributed such a large body of work in the theatre. At the time, she herself said, I've just entered a new cycle of energy. I'm going through a rebirth. She was then 72. As a matter of fact, they speak about being a choreographer. Well, I never wanted to be a choreographer, never heard the word when I was a student. And all that I was concerned with was dancing. And I had no material for that, so I had to do it myself. Her focus was always on the art. It wasn't, there was no peripheral thing going on. So it was very concentrated work. Um, I can only think of stories not having known Louis Horst directly. Uh, one thing that he would always do when she would be depressed is play the Maple Leaf Rev, a Scott Joplin piece, which is so unlike all her other music. But when she would get really depressed and she wouldn't be able to work any longer, um, she'd ask him to play the Maple Leaf Rev. And ironically, that was the last ballet that she created was the Maple Leaf Rag. Graham was born in Allegheny, Pennsylvania, the same birthplace as Gertrude Stein and the American painter Mary Cassatt. It was a town quoted as being unsurpassed in location and unrivaled in the activity, intelligence and patriotism of her people. It had energy, religious fervour, all encased in an attitude of moral rectitude. It valued conservative thinking above all. In fact, that uh, dichotomy, if you will, is apparent in her choreography. There are times when the torso is stuck still, but boy, those legs are paddling like crazy underneath. Or, or the um, just again back to the earthiness, the whole pelvis, you know, the contraction release, the whole center of the, the movement starting from the center of the body, the center of the earth. And that's, I mean, there were times when one part was working, one wasn't. Um, and it's, again, some of the choreography, you know, like the wide open spaces, American document, or, uh, not, I'm sorry, not an American document, Frontier. Mm-hmm. I mean, and just the set, it's just this rope. And it's huge movement, you know, just the wide open spaces. Her father was a doctor specializing in mental disorders. In those days, they called him an alienist. It was really a custodial job because at that time it was a triumph just to diagnose a mental disorder, let alone treat one. Her mother was also from Allegheny, 15 years younger than her husband. Three daughters were born, Martha, the oldest, then Mary, and lastly Georgia, who was later to dance with the Graham Company.
When Martha was nearly 12 years old, her brother William was born. Boys were a rarity in the Graham family, so naturally his arrival brought great joy to the household. Sadly, little Billy contracted measles and died at 20 months old. Looking after them was an Irish girl called Elizabeth Prendergast, called Lizzie. Much loved by the family, she stayed with them until the day she died. Later, Martha was to liken her to the nurse in Romeo and Juliet. It was a comfortable home, strict with church on Sundays. No disorder was allowed in their rooms, no falsehoods, profanity or any other form of vice. All three girls were reared protectively as little ladies. Everything the girls did had to pass the strict eye of their mother. Their hair had to be tied back neatly in braids, their faces scrubbed, long cotton stockings and knee-covering skirts. When she grew up, she continued to copy her mother's hairstyle, parted in the middle and drawn back severely to a large clump at the back of her head. She was beautiful. She was always beautiful. She was always impeccably kept. I've never... I toured with her uh, to Europe and the United States, and I, I never remember seeing her where she wasn't just perfectly manicured and perfectly kept. Uh, even on her, in quotes, her bad days, uh, when her hair wasn't done as well as it could have been, uh, she was still beautiful and, and perfectly sculptured. Uh, even after a 14-hour plane ride where the rest of us were just ragged, Martha would come off the plane. Well, of course, she would sit in, in first class and we were in coach, but uh, she, would, she would come off the plane looking like she just came out of a beauty parlor, and that's after 14 hours of flying to Frankfurt. So uh, She had incredible stamina. Martha said that her people were strict religionists who felt that dancing was a sin, but luckily they moved to Santa Barbara.
They moved here to Santa Barbara when she was 14, mainly because of her sister Mary's asthma, and lived here on Garden Street in a two-storey Victorian wooden house. Later, Martha said that no child could develop as a real Puritan in a tropical climate. It was also here in Southern California that she came upon the power of the Indian and knew the freedom of the Negro. She was in her impressionable adolescent years, and the openness of California helped her strive for a new kind of life out of keeping with her background. You see, I have a theory. That is, we're in the United States, we're washed by two oceans. I was born on the Atlantic side, but from for all my childhood, I spent on the West Coast in Santa Barbara, with the result that I was surrounded by things from Asia, things from the Orient, people from Asia. But of course, what has drawn me to Asia has been an entirely different thing. That is the dance form of Europe, which I did not know except as I saw ballet. I was so puzzled by what to dance and how to dance and material to dance. As a matter of fact, they speak about being a choreographer. Well, I never wanted to be a choreographer, never heard the word when I was a student. And all that I was concerned with was dancing. And I had no material to dance, so I had to do it myself. At first, she wanted to be a writer, and so was active in the school magazine and wrote some of the school plays. Her yearbook said, She is capable, generous, willing to do, to the noblest standard, and is faithful and true. Yet she began to show her characteristic gutsy self when still at school. She fell foul of one of her instructors, Nina Moyes, who was later to become film director, and during her graduation recital number, in front of the entire school, when Miss Moyes began to whisper loudly, Martha stopped, looked at her and said, I will continue at another time, and left the stage. Against her father's wishes, she then entered a school that emphasised expression, the Cumnock School in Los Angeles. As well as all the academic subjects, they did dance and drama. The pupil's idol at the time was Ruth St. Dennis, and when Martha was two years at the school, St. Dennis and her husband Ted Sean opened a dancing school called Dennis Sean. At the school, Ruth St. Dennis was not particularly impressed with Martha, but Ted Sean took her under his wing, and in no time she herself was teaching at the school. Later, Sean created dances for her, and her first big success was in 1920 in a piece called Exotile. He saw her as an untamed, beautiful black panther, and this dance was based on a Mexican legend. Isidore Duncan had explored Greek mythology, Ruth St. Dennis, the dances of the East. Later, Martha was to explore Indian, black and American legends.
In Exotil, Sean partnered Martha, and in it he made full use of her power and fury. She frequently drew blood and caused bruises. There's a story told later, when she partnered another dancer in the same piece, that he became so bruised and winded by the end, when she kept whispering to him, "'Come up! Get up and continue!' He only had the power to gasp, "'I can't!' She spent many years dancing, touring, and teaching with the Denishon Company. After quite a few artistic differences, she left and joined the Greenwich Village Follies, taking with her the dances Sean had created for her. Ultimately, though, it was Ruth St. Dennis that she adored and emulated, and Ted Sean she dismissed. Then the Eastman School of Music was founded by George Eastman of the Kodak Company, and she was asked to head its dance department. It was around this time that Martha decided that from now on her whole life was to be dominated by dance. She was to be no longer an entertainer, but a committed artist. Her immediate objective was to find dancers with whom she could form a company and create dances designed to express her own personal vision. There is an energy to life. There's an appetite for life. There's an excitement in the use of the body as a great instrument to portray the inner being. And that, of course, is my desire and my passion. And anything that will permit me to do that, I selfishly use. Lewis Horst first met Martha on the day she auditioned for Ruth St. Dennis. He was to be a major influence in her life. After a brief affair, they decided to form a working partnership, one that would alter the course of dance history. I always think of him as being an ogre. Um, the, the first story I think I ever heard about Louis was how he would put Martha in a room, and this is the beginning of her musical education, and he would sit her down, she wouldn't be allowed to read, drink, she could just sit there and listen to music. Um, and I think that was probably the most profound thing he could have done because then she had a tendency when she was listening to music for ballets to go back to that and to just concentrate on the music and not, uh, not have peripheral things going on. I don't think she'd ever think of cleaning her apartment. Well, I don't think she'd ever think of cleaning her apartment. <laughs> Uh, somebody always did that for her, but um, he was her music director probably from around 19, maybe late 20s, early 30s, I think, uh, up until the early 60s. And he not only composed a lot for her, but he also introduced her to people like Aaron Copeland and Samuel Barber and uh, Wallingford Rieger, names that might not mean too much to the run-of-the-mill person listening to music today, but to somebody who studied classical music near the the, the some of the highest points that you can reach as a composer of contemporary music.
I personally, listening to Louis Horst's music for its own value, I think it's terrible. Um, it's, it's, it's very boring, mundane music, but when you put it together with the dance, it makes perfect sense. I mean, he might have a, a, a small little, what contemporary musicians would call a riff. Um, I'm trying to think of what that would be. I'm going to pause for a second. Uh, so he might, Louis Horst may have used a, a theme like... Uh, If in my imagination, just listening to that music in and of itself, I picture someone, you know, like a, you know, a black cape creeping around the doorways and then running a little bit faster. But then when you see it with the dances, uh, it's from a ballet called Primitive Mysteries, and the dances are exactly in time with the music, a series of maybe, what, six or eight dances. Going in perfect precision. Uh, and it's a it's a stunning effect, and in its simplicity, I mean, it's just piano and flute, I believe, at that section. And in its simplicity, it's it's absolutely stunning and extremely powerful. On April 18, 1926, Martha gave her first independent dance recital with Horst accompanying her. She was 32 years old; he was 43. For their first concert, they had very very little money. The dancers worked just for expenses. Already, they were selflessly devoted to Martha and her vision. Often she would ask her dancers to rehearse for months and months on a new work, sometimes as long as ten months, for one show, and then pay them only ten dollars for the performance. At that time she worked only with women dancers, developing her style on her own body and on theirs, not yet exploring the tension or the dramatic possibilities that exists in male-female dance forms. Her company of women regarded her with awe. Bette Davis, one of her early pupils, said, I worshipped her. She was all tension, lightning. Her burning dedication gave her the power of ten men. She was beginning to encourage a cult, and sure enough in time she would become the high priestess of modern dance.
1938, Eric Hawkins turned up at the Graham studio to take a course. He'd been working with Balanchine's American Dance Ballet, but he was a little dissatisfied and looking for something different. He was one of the first male ballet dancers to study Graham. Martha took to him to everyone's amazement, and for the first time made a male, Hawkins, a principal in the dance she was working on, American Document. Hawkins was to become the model for all of the male roles in Graham Ballets. His presence brought the dramatic conflict between the sexes into her work. A reviewer once said in a tone of shock about Hawkins, who danced bare-chested, that he was naked except for white shorts. He proved invaluable in the matter of raising money, never missing an opportunity. For instance, he noticed the name de Rothschild amongst the school's pupils and so secured for the company Beth Sabay de Rothschild, the company's most faithful and generous benefactress. Eric Hawkins was to become Martha's husband and was to cause her as much grief as joy, just as her own father inspired in her a rich mixture of fear, awe and reverence. After 11 years, they broke up during their first long international tour, actually in London, after Martha had injured her knee and had to cancel both the Paris and London performances. In 1940, she choreographed two pieces, Letter to the World, based on Emily Dickinson's poem, I am nobody, who are you? Are you nobody too? And El Penitente. Of the two works, El Penitente was then the more successful. Speaking to an interviewer at the time about her change of direction, Martha said, We must win back our audiences. We have alienated them through grimness of theme and a non-theatrical approach to our dancing in long woolens. We must now prove to our audiences that our theatre pieces have colour, warmth and entertainment value. El Penitente was sunny and clear, portraying a band of Spanish strolling players who enact episodes from the Bible, a self-flagellating Christ figure, and Mary portrayed as three women, the Virgin, remote and unapproachable, the Magdalene, very approachable as she caressed her body with an apple, and finally the comforting Madonna. Of course, all three were danced by Martha herself. The score by Horst was the last he composed for her. Later of the two pieces, Letter to the World was to become the classic. In all, she created more than 200 works, but only allowed a tiny handful to be filmed. Her art was a personal one that was not easily shared. When she lost creative interest in one dance, she created another. From the beginning, she was the centre of her company and her art, and performing was the one activity that sustained her. I do know that wherever people are given an opportunity to see things in, its, in the terms in which it is couched, as in the Orient, they have, the Orientals, the Asians, had no trouble at all. We had a very lovely time there, simply because they look at something, they're moved by something, or they're not, and that's it. And I think too often we put too much pressure on how much we understand something. Mm. I think understanding is a very dangerous word th these days, and the true understanding really comes from the heart anyway.
She had an intense desire to control all aspects of her company and was sometimes reluctant to give up any of the roles she'd created for herself. She was a curious mixture. In costumes, for example, she was compulsive. Before the opening of any season, she gathered the dancers together to remake completed costumes that supposedly had been perfect. The dancers always found themselves sitting up most of the night before performance with Martha sewing. She herself was an expert seamstress and liked to use the dancer rather than a mannequin. She would continually rearrange the pieces of the costume on the dancer using safety pins to fit everything together. All the dancers carried safety pins. They called them their daisy chains. To achieve the right fit, she would have the dancer wear the unfinished costume while performing the movements of the dance for which it was designed. In class, Martha was ever the grand lady. She treated each class in the studio almost as an encounter with a lover. Uh, it's highly structured and the, the meter, the tempo, uh, the, the emotional content of the movement and the music is predicted by Martha Graham and the people around her. Um, so a musician going in cold doesn't really stand much of a chance and it took roughly three months before I even began to understand what was this school and its work was all about. Um, after that time, I had a pretty good grasp on what it was, what was going on, and I found myself playing for a master class from Martha Graham, which was terrifying the first time, and every time thereafter. When, when Martha would conduct a class, uh, either to her company or to the students, the advanced students in the school, or even the, sometimes the lower level students in the school, uh, there was a ritual. Uh, sometimes we knew she was going to come in, and sometimes we didn't know she was going to come in. But in any event, what would happen is she would appear at the door. Um, she was never just sitting in the classroom waiting for the students to come in. Martha made her entrance, period. Um, when she did walk into the room, well, it's tradition when a teacher walks into the room in the Graham Center, you stand up. And you don't sit down until the teacher says, sit down. Oh, well, actually, they say, be seated. You don't sit down at the Graham studio. And when Martha would come into the room, <laughs> We would, we would, including the musician, which we never did this with teachers, we would stand up and then we would wait until she got to the other side of the room, which wasn't that long, but it, it could seem like an eternity. Um, and then eventually she wouldn't really say anything. She would sit down and she would indicate that we were supposed to sit. She rarely ever said, be seated. Um, the way most of the classes that Martha conducted would happen is uh, she would just say and and that was the class and then about 45 minutes later the class would stop having gone through about a dozen maybe 16 exercises 18 exercises because the ritual was so well defined that we knew when to change to what meter 
what the emotional content was, what the movement was supposed to be, how fast or slow it was supposed to be. God help the musician or the dancer who did not know that sequence. Uh, there have been instances that where musicians have been thrown out of the room, where dancers have been thrown out of the rooms. Um, there have been, there should have been instances where teachers were thrown out of the room, but they weren't. She herself was always immaculately dressed. She could run up a dress in an evening. Later, she liked to buy from Dior. In class, she had little patience with girls who looked untidy and ungroomed. She used to call them raggle-taggle gypsies. Beth Burleson was a pupil at the school. Even in teaching, she would have all these stories and images, like the one, um, the long lanes, you know, the neck, the jugular. She would always exposing the yes, jugular. Yes, yes, she would always yes. talk about the wolves. You know, they would fight, and then one wolf would throw back his head as though giving up. She studied. She read a lot about animals. I mean, and animals' behavior. In fact, the TV uh, actor Richard Boone, who starred in the very popular TV series Have Gun Will Travel believe it or not, actually studied with Martha Graham oh, 15 years before uh, the hit series. And he apparently learned this walk of the cat, as she would call it, and later on adapted it and made it into the, his characteristic posture and walk that he had on the TV show. Well, and also a lot of actors study with her, Woody Allen, Liza Minnelli, Gregory Peck. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And she had Betty Ford. Um, she influenced such a tremendous, so many generations of, of performers. Um, she was a neat lady. As her fame grew, she was honoured by many and wooed by radical causes. Radicals were an important part of Martha's audiences. Sometimes she participated in left-wing occasions, and although she never used politics in her dances, she was inspired to do so in one about the Spanish Civil War. In 1936, when Germany was preparing for the Olympic Games, she was asked to perform with her group as part of the Cultural Olympics. She replied, I would find it impossible to dance in Germany at the present time. So many artists whom I respect and admire have been persecuted have been deprived of the right to work for ridiculous reasons, that I should consider it impossible to identify myself by accepting the invitation with the regime that has made such things possible. In addition, some of my concert group would not be welcomed in Germany. She then signed the letter in her bold, backward, slanting hand. I remember someone telling me um, a story about they had worked, danced with Graham in the 60s and obviously knew her well as a performer. And some years later, they came across a film of her performing um, a particularly intense and dramatic solo. And it was just a film projected on a wall. It wasn't a video or a special TV-made documentary or anything. And they watched this film of, of Martha dancing, just, you know, flickering against a, a blank white wall. And as they saw her performing, they became more and more terrified because of the intensity of her dancing. She was playing, a, a, as usual, a powerful, possibly even murderous woman, you know. And they were just absolutely riveted, like the hairs were rising on the back of their neck as they watched this. And just was quite disturbed by the whole experience. And later, even further on after that, they saw some footage of Hitler giving a speech at a youth rally. And they said that they, reminded, they were reminded of the same thing. Mm. Not that she was evil, right. but that she had that same command which would just rivet you to your seat and, and transfix you. 
And so even, she's just so multifaceted. And as a performer, I think, I mean, I wish I had seen her uh, perform at her, at her peak because she was, I think there, the legend, it's fair, it's mm -hmm. true. It isn't exaggeration. I mean, I think she was truly amazing.
as her ability to control life through dancing decreased. She came to rely more heavily on the alcohol which had entered her life seriously when Eric Hawkins had left. Somehow her remarkable body managed to survive these years of abuse, often drinking as much as a quart of whiskey a day. She was a terrible alcoholic, um, and I don't think she ever denied that. There are stories of her in uh, doing the, the ballet Clytemnestra, where she literally stumbled across the stage. Well, not stumbled across, I shouldn't say that. She went across the stage in, in character and she did the, the choreography, but then she'd go into the wings and she would just fall over and then bounce right back up when it came time for her entrance and go right back onto the ballet. Um, she had a terrible temper, where she's, she's been known to rip phones out of walls and throw them at people. And... They have almost horror stories of, you know, fits of temper and, you know, what, what the company went through, what she put them through, just with her drinking and her failing health. And in a way, you can't blame her. I mean, the woman's danced all her life and she sort of sees it slipping away. You want to grab on to everything mm -hmm. that you can. Um, and, and again, with her, just the brute strength, when I was there, uh, she would come up to men in the company and they weren't standing straight. She'd whack them in solar plexus and stand them up straight. And they'd falter for a few days after. <laughs> she, she didn't spare the rod or her wrist or anything like that.
Despite all this, her creativity continued, but because of her fame, her personal life was increasingly solitary. Her name was becoming universally recognised as the most famous modern dancer in the world. During her acceptance speech for the Aspen Award for the Humanities, which she received in the mid-1960s, when she was in her 70s, she said, People have asked me why I've chosen to be a dancer. I did not choose to be a dancer. I was chosen to be a dancer, and with that you live all your life. It cost me a great deal of effort and a great deal of time, and every thing and every minute has been treasured. The main thing, of course, always is the fact that there is only one of you in the world, just one. You came from a certain background, you were born at a certain time, a certain instant in the history of the world, and as that you are unique. In 1970, the company decided to force the issue of Martha's retirement. She was informed that they intended to perform without her. She was furious. Then on the day of the opening season, the New York Times ran the story of her retirement on the front page. This infuriated her all the more. That night, the city of New York presented her with a Handel medallion, its highest cultural honour. By the end of her brilliantly improvised acceptance speech, Martha had managed to unretire herself and continued to work and create for another 20 years. From what I know about the end uh, of her life, she had gone on tour to the Far East with her company and uh, caught pneumonia uh, while she was on tour, or briefly thereafter got pneumonia when she got back, probably because she was just so fatigued. Uh, I know she was having problems walking, uh, but she, I'm sure she was far too proud to be put in a wheelchair, dancer in a wheelchair, forget it, never happened. So I'm sure she was just helped around. Uh, but I've seen a lot of pictures of her with Madonna recently, uh, which were taken within the last few years. Uh, and she was surrounded by people like Liza Minnelli, uh, Gorishnikov, Nuria. These are all fairly recent, I believe. Gorishnikov uh, danced with the company about two or three years ago, I think. Um, the late Halston was uh, her costumer uh, for several years. Um, and I she was pretty active. Whenever I had seen her, she was pretty much unassisted. Uh, she, she would take your arm sometimes, but uh, you know, it's, I saw it more as a politeness. I don't think she really needed to. Uh, even at 93, I think was the last time I played for her when she was about 93, uh, it was for a company class and they had their heads down on the floor and we just heard this clump. Well, of course, I was watching the class from the piano, so I had seen what had happened. Uh, she didn't like the way they had their heads in the soles of their feet, which is the first exercise that you do uh, in a gram class. So she plopped herself down on the floor and put her head in the soles of her feet and says, well, if I can do it at 93, you can do it at your ages. And then at another point, she didn't like the way they had their, their feet. She, their feet weren't up above their heads, and she, she stood in the middle of the room holding onto a chair, and she put her foot above her head at 93 years old. I think of dancers as acrobats of God. And I use that in a very humble way, the word God. Of course, this comes from the use of the athletes of God, who were the Desert Fathers in the 12th and 13th century. But I'm afraid the Desert Fathers would be a little scandalized at the way <laughs> some of the dancers appear. And it is the glory of the body 
and the play of the body in action. Papa had a turtle and she explained to me one day when I had delivered the turtle from the school to the house why she had the turtle and she said it's supposed to uh, enhance your love life so that's why she got the turtle she was in she was around 90 when she said that to me so uh, and turtles are, are also known for their longevity and that may have something to do with it but Martha is very very spiritual uh, I would like to say religious, but I don't think she was religious in, in any uh, Christian type of sense or uh, almost bordering on witchcraft, but not, it's a spirituality uh, that is, uh, it's inherent in her work, uh, her class work, is, it's, it's a very spiritual work, uh, and is a, is a, it's not just a Graham class that you take, it's the Graham ritual that you go through. And it's it's almost like the rite of passage for uh, American Indian, where they you know they'll string you up from from your chest on these wires. Uh, it's not very dissimilar. I mean, the, the dancers come out of there exhausted. Uh, their bodies are aching, and most of them don't dare say anything about it because it's just part of the ritual that you don't usually complain. At least until you get home to your mater. You know, it it's a little ironic too because there were certain. Uh, stylistic things that Martha would do with her hands and with her feet. Uh, one of the things that's, that she did was called a cupped hand, which is where the fingers are at a right angle to the palm and the fingers are kept straight, so you end up with a, a look like, kind of like that. And uh, Martha had terrible arthritis and her hands, were, her hands were essentially unusable. Her feet were essentially unusable for all intents and purposes. Um, and her hands were arthritic in that cupped position and it's almost as if she had done uh, the cupped hands too much and uh, but they, but her fingers were also at a severe angle going out from the thumb so it was, it was very harsh uh, harsh looking hands and uh, she was supposed to have surgery on her hands many times uh, to, to get rid of the arthritis and she just never wanted to go through with it. In fact, that's how we got, one of the reasons we got our family doctor is that there was, um, and this is uh, ironic, but this was at the beginning of the AIDS scare. And one of the dancers in the company had what they, I guess they thought was hepatitis. He has subsequently died of AIDS. But in order for, to, this is before AIDS was well known about, 
and before everyone got this hepatitis virus that apparently was serious, they made us get gamma globulin shots. And uh, Martha, they had, they did the gamma gamma globulin shots in the faculty lounge, and Martha sat there and watched every member of the company and every member of the staff of the school, every musician, secretary, drop their drawers and get their gamma globulin shots. And she watched every single one. Um, and again, this I'm not sure if that was because this person had AIDS and that was the beginning of his disease, but he was one of the first people that I knew who died of AIDS. Um, but it, it was, you know, I just can't forget Martha sitting there watching us drop our drawers. You know, he's just 90 year old woman and you know, I've been working hard for for what, two years, three years, whatever it was. And I I had heard that you had to drop your drawers to keep your job, but I didn't think that this is what it was about. <laughs> At the age of 79, receiving another award, Martha recalled the first New York concert of her own work in 1926 and a remark made after the performance by a woman who had known her earlier. She said, it's dreadful, Martha, how long do you expect to keep this up? As long as I have an audience. Some of the people who knew her then, I think, or well, people who danced with her, they found it impossible to believe that she would ever die. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what was quite sort of sad of when she did die, really. I remember some people saying to me, oh, she's never going to die. Mm -hmm. She could never die. How could she die? Mm -hmm. She's just, I mean, sometimes they say, well, maybe she won't be there anymore. But she won't die because she was just such a force. I mean, she'd already defied all the rules and nature even, really, with her dancing. So death seemed to be just, you know, not really a very likely possibility for her. But she did die, actually, physically, at the age of 96. But not spiritual. She's mm -hmm. still here. <laughs> 